even darker than American carnage. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy's work, of course, appears at houstonchronicle.com and at expressnews.com on the daily. Jeremy, there's so much news going on uh, over the course of this last week, I had almost forgotten that President Donald Trump, the 45th president, who's trying to be the 47th president, um, that he had a rally last weekend that you were at. I almost forgot about that. Uh, but then I remembered it quickly last yeah. night when he was in, when he was indicted, which was the backdrop for the whole rally. Yeah. Right. I mean, he had already been talking about that. He had been laying the groundwork with his supporters that he's going to be persecuted in New York. And this is something that's interesting. And I want you to describe the rally, but first I do want to say this. Um, it was interesting which Republicans were really vocal about the indictment, but were not at the rally. Once the indictment was made public, you saw uh, Republicans around here speaking out against it. They were saying that this is sort of a miscarriage of justice. This is all uh, political. I do want to note that they were not really talking about the underlying behavior of the former president, which was paying off a porn star to keep a, you know, an affair quiet, which is not in dispute, by the way. This is all about um, paperwork is what they say. That they didn't fill out their paperwork correctly. I've, last time, and this has to do with campaign finances. The last time I remember that campaign finances were the subject of a big indictment in Texas, the underlying activity was redistricting. You know, years ago, more than twenty years ago, nobody cares about that. But people do care about paying off a porn star. So the uh, reactions were very different. But at this rally. The people who were there, Jeremy, they were really amped up, and we'll get into the details of it, but first, this was the thing that caught uh, the attention of so many people, and in fact, it was something that even some Republicans found to be disgusting. You were there. You saw that there was a choir made up of January 6th rioters, people who had been arrested for their roles at the riot at the Capitol, and they were singing the national anthem. In fact, Trump featured the January 6th choir right as he took the stage, and there was imagery from the January 6th riots on screens behind him. Ladies and gentlemen, please rise and place your hand over your heart for the number one song on iTunes, Amazon, and the Billboard charts, Justice for All, featuring President Donald J. Trump and the J6 choir. Jeremy, tell us about the crowd there. I mean, I heard a lot of hooting and hollering, people who were excited about the J6 choir. Did anybody seem uh, taken aback at all by that, or were they just really into it? No, the, it, it really hit a nerve with this crowd. You know, you, like I can't explain to you, like on the screens, they were showing the attack on the Capitol. As like, you know, you could see the people going into and he's doing this, you know, anthem where he's pledging to the flag and kind of messing up the anthem quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, but, and the crowd is like fired up and like, and th- then his speech ends up talking about, you know, basically these Patriots who are, you know, being held by the government and stuff. And it's, and it's like, it was, look, I've covered probably 26, 27 of these events now with Trump God over the years you. in Florida, here, Georgia, you know, and this 
without a doubt, was the darkest one I've been to. It was very negative. It was like mm-hmm. you, you felt like it was this, this barrage of everything that's wrong with the world. They're coming after us. Everything is bad and to hell with it all. It's like it felt like almost like you were left with a choice at the end of this thing, whether or not like oh, just give up and move on because America's gone. Uh, and there was very little. Oh, well, well, let, let's make sure Trump gets reelected. I didn't mm-hmm. feel that energy nearly as much as everything sucks and it's terrible to be here on a hot, sunny day in Waco on a the runway of a regional airport with hardly any way to get in or out with low, no hardly any food, you know, not enough porta potties. It's like, and yet they went through all this to pledge allegiance to, which was weird, the January six rioters. And I just, I was just really confused by the whole thing. There was no attempt to distance, you know, Trump from that stuff. He just, he wanted to remind the crowd and everybody watching and everybody in the media that he helped get those January 6 rioters going, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I'm still confused by it. Well, and setting the tone uh, before Trump spoke, you had Texas Agriculture Commissioner Sid Miller, who basically framed up today's politics in this way. You know, when I started in, in uh, politics a few years back, it was the Republicans versus the Democrats. And then it changed into something totally different. It became conservatives against liberals. Now we've, we've gone beyond that. And I'm convinced today it's patriots versus the traitors. Commissioner Miller, I think, is right about one thing. And he said a version of that previously. I think at some of the previous rallies, Jeremy, that you may have been uh, in attendance for. Um, he's saying that it's not conservatives versus liberals anymore. And then he goes on to the stuff about patriots versus traitors, which I think is kind of through the looking glass when you take into account the fact that they were praising the people who rioted on January 6th. But this is, here, here's what he's right about. This is not conservatives versus liberals anymore, right? That's not necessarily a conservative message that you're hearing at a Trump rally now. It's more all about Trump and his grievances, to your point. It's about uh, the the just horribleness of this country without Trump as president. Um, and it, I don't hear anything from these folks about necessarily about certain policies, about uh, you know the old school way of uh, Republican governance which would be to focus in on, you know, tax cuts and growing the economy and, you know, getting those people um, who have been sort of, uh, you know, hurt economically by democratic policies, getting them, you know, out of that, out of that rut, right? That's the kind of message that he delivered uh, in 2016 when he was successful. This is not about those issues. It's just about Trump's issues. Yeah. It's like, if you remember the morning in America, Ronald Reagan ads, uh, think about the opposite. <laughs> that that thing that just seemed to kind of you know cut through in in, in, a, in a, almost a bipartisan way of like our best mm-hmm. days are ahead of us. We got to get together. Right. It's like none of that in this thing. This was just this felt like you know I was just you know overwhelmed by how negative the whole thing was. And 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 you could see the concern from other Republicans and other people in the world, even you know Trump supporters who were like, you know, he's not really talking enough about just kind of like what electing him will get us, you know, mm-hmm. versus like a list of grievances and problems and how terrible everything is. It's just it's like he's not giving people who aren't at that, you know, rally much of a reason to want to come back. 
You know, it's like, and I'm wondering, it's like, at what point does he have somebody, you know, maybe this is, you know, with all the people who have left his campaign over the years and whatever, there's maybe nobody left in the room that says, you still got to reach the people who won't go to the Waco Regional Airport to hear you speak an hour yeah. after you said you were going to show up because he was late too. You know, it's like, and so it's like, and so all that's happening. Like, so what about the people who don't go to that? Like who are even Republicans who voted for you in 2016? What did you tell them in this message that said, oh, come vote for me the next time? I'm not sure what it was. Yeah, Former rock legend Ted Nugent is Commissioner Miller's campaign treasurer, and he went off about the issue of aid to Ukraine. I want my money back. I didn't authorize any money to Ukraine to some homosexual weirdo. He's talking about Zelensky in Ukraine, who I don't think is homosexual. I I think that – is this – do I have this right, Jeremy? This is just the old school way of insulting somebody by calling them gay when they're not just because you're using gay as pejorative. Does that sound right to you? Because he can't think that he's gay. Yeah, when you're stuck in 1973 when he was last at the height of his career, you kind of keep that language that was really ridiculously offensive you know, uh-huh. going, I guess, because it was like odd. It didn't make any sense because, uh, you know, look, every, you know, Zelensky's married, has two kids, and there's nothing that suggests that, you know, he is gay, you know, but mm-hmm. but he's still sitting there. I don't get I don't I again, yet another confusing moment of the Waco rally where I was kind of looking around going, is anybody else understanding what the hell he's talking about? But they were cheering. They were cheering. Right. Of course. Let me help you with that. It's a bunch of bigots who are cheering for that. If you call somebody gay when they're not, you're just using it as an insult. They love it. Um, so let me let me let me tell you somebody who would not be cheered. Somebody who would probably be booed off the stage. The counterpoint for this issue of Ukraine aid, all the money that we're sending there to try to back them up in their uh, dispute in their war uh, with Russia, Congressman Dan Crenshaw from Houston. I don't think would be welcome here. In fact, remember, he's the one who has been called, what did they call him, Jeremy? Um, Eye Patch McCain. Yeah, I almost, which, I almost hate, you know, even which is using a, that. Again, just like well, this. It, again, now, yeah. another everything's about insults. on somebody because of the way they look, right? You know, it's like, I love yes. it. Well, everything's about uh, insults. Remember, the Eye Patch McCain thing comes from uh, former President Trump being the one to insult John McCain. Yep who was a prisoner of war. He said that, you know, he liked uh, the fo- the folks who were in the military who did not get captured. That was his big laugh line. And at that time, a lot of folks, including a lot of Republicans would have thought that after he said that about McCain, his, you know, his career in politics would be over. Instead, it just continued on and he rolled over the rest of the Republican field to become the nominee and then the president of the United States. Crenshaw said, it's not in our interest to just let China and Russia do whatever they want, including invading a sovereign nation. And he says, look, the U.S. has got to have a response when that happens. It's not America first to let China and Russia just just conquer the world until they come to our shores, right? It gets to this very naive sense of isolation, isolationism that like, it made a lot of sense in the 1700s when it took six to eight months to get to Europe, but now it takes nine hours. The world is different. And until we kind of face that reality, um, national defense is not just like Navy SEALs sitting on our coastlines with our guns pointed out, just waiting for the invasion to come. That's not national defense. National defense means forward deployed. It means having alliances. It means admitting that you live in a dangerous and very, very small world where where having more friends is beneficial and being able to counter your enemies strategically and stand up to them is also beneficial for your interests. 
Now, that would probably not be met with cheers at the Trump rally, in part because it sounds like a lecture, and that is uh, because, of course, it's Dan Crenshaw speaking. Uh, But it's not a position they would like either, right? This is the throwback, as you mentioned, Ronald Reagan. This is the throwback to you know the Reagan era of trying to make a positive difference around the world. In you know, with the understanding that it's not we're trying that you know we're just trying to help people in other countries. We're trying to help ourselves because if we don't, we live in this world that's been transformed, uh, and we cannot you know be isolationist. But that's the kind of thing that Trump has preached all along. Uh, whether it came to our national defense or it came to trade agreements, he was against all of it, Jeremy. Yeah, and I, look, that whole interview that uh, Crenshaw had, I have the whole thing on HoustonChronicle.com. I wrote a story about it. The whole three-minute thing is really worth your time because he makes a lot of you know interesting points in there and just kind of continue. There's like one point, point where he says, like, you know, why wouldn't you want to write a check to the Ukrainians who are fighting and dying uh, to dismantle the Russian military so it's not intact on the borders of four more NATO countries. They are literally doing what we want to happen, and all we have to do is write a check. You know, it's like we don't have to put any of our people in harm's way, but the benefit of having a degraded Russian military, uh, it, not only does that send the message there, but we've mm-hmm. heard, you know, I, I had another clip of, uh, you know, Representative Michael McCain, uh, the Austin Republican, who's the Foreign Affairs or McCall, uh, mm-hmm. Foreign Relations yeah. Chair, like he, like you know, he's talking about how this is the way. You know, this was on Sunday. He was talking about how this is a deterrent for China to kind of as they keep you know saber rattling around Taiwan. If they're, what they're watching there is going to just happen in Taiwan, is you can see how that would kind of put the brakes on things. So, so there is a national interest in making sure Russia and China stay a little bit more in check is the point he makes in this thing. It's a really interesting interview. Yeah, we'll check it out. Um, now to the headliner. Uh, Donald Trump told the crowd in Waco that he has made incredible sacrifices over the last several years, and he felt that it was necessary because he wanted to do things to help this country. When they go after me, they're going after you. I left behind a magnificent life and I stepped up to fight for America because no one else would do it or would do it properly. Matt said it. He left behind a magnificent life. I'll remind you, he lives at Mar-a-Lago uh, in, in, and other places, too. It's quite a bit of real estate left uh, in his empire. What was the main theme of his speech, Jeremy? I mean, he talked a lot of, uh, he talked a lot of uh, you know, uh, grievances and complaints. But what else was there? Was that really all there was? It's hard for me to believe it. Yeah, it was pretty intense on that. You know, it was, you know, you know, it, some of the greatest hits were there. You know, it's like, we're going to, you know, put me in there. We're going to, you know, build the wall again. You know, uh, he didn't say Mexico was going to pay for it this time. So I was like, I was kind of waiting for that, you know, gave up on that. It would have been nice for him to be in Texas saying, oh, by the way, we're going to make Mexico pay for it. You know, it it was kind of it was weird because it was a lot of old grievances. But really, you know, he he really went after, you know, the potential indictment, uh, kept, you know, pounding that issue, which has kind of helped him. You know, it probably helped him get a bigger turnout. You know, it probably helped. You know, we I reported that it helped him raise one point five million dollars going into that mm-hmm. rally. You know, just like you can see how, like, you know, it's rallied the base of his support back in his corner. And like, if that wasn't happening, you know, maybe the attendance at the Waco rally is maybe half of what it was going to be. 
You know, it's like, I just, I think it actually did have some benefit to him to say, they're coming at me. And and you kind of get the feeling like this might be the last rally you ever see. That's the one thing I've been kind of, you know, thinking in my head. If this indictment goes the wrong way uh, for him, like he, he's taking advantage of this now, thinking this is like great for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, there's a point where you go, well, I'm not so sure you know, we're going to make it after all. <laughs> it's kind of the feel I'm getting. I, I'm stealing that from, uh, I saw American Aquarium last night in Austin. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And they have a line in a song about that, where it's just like, you're just, you're tragically think things are going well, but all of a sudden, mm-hmm. it maybe you're not going to get what you think out of this. And yeah. I think his problem is like, he might be so tangled up with his indictment. It's going to be hard for him to do these rallies. So there's a potential, what we saw in Waco might be the last time we ever see a Trump MAGA rally. In Waco, Texas, which is crazy, but it's possible. Might be the last one we see anywhere, which would just be just so awful. Yeah, hold on to your placards, everybody. That one is going to be a a legendary one. (laughs) Yeah, within conservative thought circles, uh, there's disagreement about all of this. I'll give you an example. Brian Kilmeade, who's one of the conservative hosts on Fox News Channel on their morning show, Fox and Friends, he was unimpressed with this rally altogether. He said that Trump should not be reminding people about January 6th, of all things, he should be you know, running away from that as quickly as possible. Uh, Kilmeade said he ought to be focused on policy and what he would do if he was elected again to the White House. He does that or other candidates do that. They're going to be unbelievably successful because that's going to be the conversation at the kitchen table. Instead, the president of the United States, uh, the former president of the United States, opened up with January 6th video, which is insane. He should be running from that period. I don't care his point of view. That is not a good thing for him. I thought that was absolutely awful. Jeremy, I was talking to a young woman who uh, covered the event, same as you, um, and she told me that the January 6th references in that rally were so disturbing, uh, but she didn't really internalize it until after the rally was over with, and she was telling someone else about it, and it wasn't until this young woman was vocalizing and describing what had happened at the rally that she really internalized what you know had, had gone on there. And actually started crying over it because this is just such a bizarre thing to be paying tribute to these folks who ransacked the Capitol, the seat of government for the United States. So this brings up the question, why Waco? Why were they doing this in Waco, Texas? And there's been some debate about this. Um, I was visiting with some folks this week about it, and we got to talking about what happened there 30 years ago in 1993. All of this happens, you know, this rally this weekend, around the anniversary of the siege at the Branch Davidian compound. And you know, Jeremy, there are a lot of people, some of our younger listeners who may not even remember anything about that, right? This is, this is now, we're old men. This is now a long time ago to have happened in 1993. So let's remind people about it. Um, it was a cult that had moved where from California to McLennan County, Texas, of all places, which is kind of the same question you ask about Trump's rally. Why in Waco of all places? They moved from California to Waco area and they set up this compound there at Mount Carmel. And there was a standoff with the government and a bunch of people died. I mean, this was terrible. And this is one of those uh, big things that happened on television right in front of our eyes for the, you know, for the first time we saw something like this broadcast out across the world. There was a 51-day standoff between federal law enforcement and members of this cult, and that's what it was. There were four federal agents killed, and 81 members of the cult were killed as well. On the first day of the siege, here's how it was covered 
on KTRK Television, Channel 13 in Houston. The fierce gun battle has led to a standoff between law officers and occult members of a religious compound outside of Waco this evening. We have a team report on this developing story, so let's begin with Debbie Johnson, who is standing by live near Waco. Debbie? Bob, what we have at this time are four dead federal agents, one dead cult member, and at least 14 people wounded. Probably the uh, number of wounded will be higher than that. The cult is something called the Branch Davidians. They're an offshoot of the Seven-Day Adventists, and their compound is east of Waco, about 15 miles. There's about 75 members. They moved here from Los Angeles back in the 1930s, descendants of this cult. Their leader is someone called Vernon Howell. He claims to be Christ, and the cult, we are told, is in possession of a virtual arsenal of weapons, including many AK-47s and AR-14 assault rifles. Now, the leader there, uh, David Koresh, uh, also called that, use the, using that name, had said that he was Jesus Christ reincarnate. Th th and these people who lived there believed it. And that's why they would allow, those people would allow him to have sex, for example, with their 12 and 14-year-old daughters. When people say that, oh, and you hear this all the time, in you know some of the old school folks in Texas will say, well, they weren't doing anything wrong there, and the government went in to go get them. Yeah, you've heard people say that, right, Jeremy? Over the years, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a debate. Oh yeah, uh, yep. it's not a legitimate debate, but it's a debate. People say that um, they were stockpiling weapons. They were when you have sex with a minor, that's rape. All right, so they were raping young girls in there. They were stockpiling weapons and illegally altering the weapons so that they would be fully automatic. So when people say things like, oh, if they can do that to those people, they could do it to you. I would say, yes, they can come in and do that if you're doing all those things, right? That's a lot of illegal stuff to be happening. Um, so why was this rally held by Trump on the 30th anniversary in that same place? Well, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick speaking at the rally said, hey, it had nothing to do with any of that. And you see all these stories that the president chose this town because of an anniversary of an event that happened 30 years ago. Well, let me tell you, that is pure bullshit, fake news. I picked Waco! I picked Waco because the president called me several weeks ago and said, I'm coming to Texas, I want you to pick a great town. That's Patrick's answer, but if you ask one of the Branch Davidians, and there are still Branch Davidians, Jeremy. Uh, yep. Robert Downen is a reporter over at the Texas Tribune. He covers extremism over there. He asked one of them in McLennan County about this rally. And listen to what this guy says. He says that Trump was really sort of making a statement, but he was kind of doing it on the sly. By coming to these stomping grounds where the government, the FBI, laid siege on these this community, just like they laid siege on Mar-a-Lago and went in and took his stuff. That's what they wanted to do here. They wanted to come in and take the guns and everything. Well, he's making a statement. He's not coming right out and saying, well, I'm doing it because I want you to know, you know, what happened there was wrong. But he implies it. He implies it. He certainly isn't implying his support for the January 6th rioters. They just said that out loud, right? They had the January 6th rioters there, uh, you know, singing the songs and showing the imagery of what had happened on January 6th. And let, let me break this down for just a second. Let me, let me slow down, Jeremy. <clears throat> Allow me for just a second. Think about what our politics are now versus what we saw in 1993. Now, at that time, I would have been 13 years old. 
and watching this unfold, I was already interested in politics. And what I remember was this conservative thought leaders in this country. And remember 1993 is right before the Republicans take the majority in 1994 in the U S Congress. Um, a lot of Republican office holders credited Rush Limbaugh at that time. One of the you know radio talk show hosts, the most popular radio talk show host, I think of all time in this country. Um, they credited him for helping to get this big sweep of Congress because he was really helping push for that and get, you know, getting the Republican base fired up. Um, but if you think about what happened in Waco in 93, you have the Republicans take the majority in 94. And then two years later, after two years after Waco in 1995, you have the bombing of the Murrah building in Oklahoma city. And it was said to be, and the, the perpetrators, including Timothy McVeigh, who was executed over it. And you think about the evil that was visited on Oklahoma city. Have you been to the memorial, Jeremy? Have you, have yeah. you looked at that? And, and you, when you, when you realize the, the kind of indiscriminate killing that happened in the heartland of this country, the babies who were in the daycare were incinerated when that truck full of, um, full of fertilizer exploded in front of the building. And it looked like a war zone. The front of that building was completely ripped off, completely destroyed. McVeigh said he was inspired by what? The siege in Waco, right? And the, and the bombing in Oklahoma happened on the anniversary of the siege in Waco. And now we have the Trump rally happening on the anniversary of the siege in Waco. Take our politics then and now. Rush Limbaugh at the time had a guest article, a guest op-ed in one of the big magazines. I think it was Time Magazine or Newsweek, one of those two. His, fa his face was on the cover, and he was arguing, you can't blame us on the right for this. He was saying, you can't blame us for some guy going nuts and you know uh, carrying out violence. It's not right to do that. Now you have Trump propping up the people who committed the violence on January 6th. I'm convinced that some of these people, the people who would have been at that rally on Saturday in Waco, if we went back in time to 1993, 94, 95, that era, those people would say that Timothy McVeigh was a political prisoner. They would say that he had some right to do that because all of these folks point to what happened in Waco as sort of an, you know, an emblematic moment of the struggle between the average person and the government, which is a crazy thing to think when you know what they were actually doing uh, in Waco. But I could not have imagined in 1993 when, when conservatives were saying, no, hey, you can't blame us for this, that 30 years later, Republicans would be saying, you know, there's nothing to be even assigned blame about on January 6th. We embrace those people, Jeremy. Those people are, and they have said this, those people are political prisoners. Yeah, one of the first you know stories I got drawn into covering as a young reporter in Missouri was the bombing in Oklahoma City. Uh, you know, we were in a small newspaper, but we were sending people to Oklahoma City, and we were on the ground. And yeah, you just you can't unsee that stuff. Uh, it's really painful. But like you know, the thematic of it, you know, it's like you know, if Dan Patrick's right, he's he didn't think anything about like having the rally on that day, you know, but. Yet you see Trump come on stage to this scene where, like, basically, you know, remember what was happening on January 6th? They were savagely beating the crap out of law enforcement. Yeah. It's like, you know, I, I can't get the image of those poor officers who were overwhelmed at the scene just trying to save the Capitol and they're getting beat to death. And we know 
some died afterwards, right? As like, and so, and so, what does Waco represent? Waco represents those four ATF agents who were killed, you know, by these people. Again, law enforcement. Like, it's how do you not link this? It's like you have this case where are the people who are trying to defend us in our nation, the back the blue crowd, should be mm-hmm. saying something about no. That is a step way too far. But in right. both those cases, we're lionizing the people who end up you know, perpetrating this violence on those people. And I don't understand it. You know, it's like, it, you know, it, and so look, Dan Patrick, you know, I had a lot of people on Twitter going, uh, you know, you know, this is the guy from Maryland who, mm-hmm. you know, did this and like, no, we can't, we cannot absolve. He was in Texas then. He knows what happened. Like I was, you know, I was here. We all like, you can't forget what happened in those 51 days. It was in one of the most important events that ever happened on the soil of Texas. And if he didn't think one minute that mm-hmm. somehow people would connect the two, it's like, what is wrong with him? It's like, there's no way like people wouldn't connect those dots. If people were trying to give him the benefit of the doubt by saying he's from Maryland and he's not from Texas, I would say, to quote Dan Patrick, it is bullshit, fake news, close quote, because that was a national event. Everyone watched that, no matter where the hell they lived. If if you were in Delaware, if you were in Maryland, sorry, I screwed up where Dan Patrick's from. If you were in uh, Pennsylvania, Louisiana, California, everybody knew about things like Ruby Ridge. And what happened in Waco, in fact, for most of the people around the country, if you say the word Waco, that's the only thing they think of. They don't think about, I'm sorry, I hate this because there are so many great, wonderful people who live in Waco and McLennan County and the part of the state we call the heart of Texas. Um, You know, but they don't think of Baylor first. They don't think of the great community that's there. The first thing, if people, if they hear the word Waco, that is what comes to mind is that siege. And now you have uh, Republican leadership embracing that area for that reason is pretty disgusting. When, you know, if you, I mean, just think about the people who live there, they don't want to be reminded about that all the time. It's a very divisive thing to be bringing up uh, in yeah. that community. Yeah. I spoke with people up there and they don't like, they don't want the national story to always be when you hear Waco, you think of, you know, the compound and the fire and the death in the destruction. You know, they want you to think of Chip and Joanna Gaines. They want you to think yes. of the Dr. Pepper Museum. Just anything else that's going on, but by doing it during the anniversary, you make it like, let's just underscore this and have all the national media, because all the national media completely jumped on it, right? Right. And it's of like, course. of course they're gonna, you know? It's just like, and and it's just not because it's a wonderful city, Dan Patrick. It's like, if it was a wonderful city, you could have picked any time, like, hey, let's do this rally after the anniversary is over, come back right. in May 1st, you know, maybe we can do it then. But this is as tone deaf as if he decided to have, let's, let's do a rally in Uvalde on May 24th. It's like, it'd be that tone deaf at this point. And like, again, like Dan Patrick's a Texan now. He's been here long enough. He, yep. if he is the guy who said, let's do Waco on the 30th anniversary of the siege, you know, it's like, then like, I, I don't know what to say. That just doesn't even make any sense. It's kind of unbelievable. I think you're right that it would be tone deaf for the average person. But if your target audience is conspiracy, you know, conspiracy theorists, then it is yeah. pitch perfect, right? Um, so Ted Cruz and other Republicans who were not at the rally 
were called out by people at the rally. Um, you know, Cruz has not been sufficiently supportive of Trump in the estimation of Trump supporters, right? <laughs> this guy was asked about um, whether or not Cruz should have been there by one of the reporters for one of the conservative TV outlets. And here's what this gentleman had to say about Ted Cruz. I called Ted Cruz's office and I told them that if they don't start speaking up for Donald Trump, that when I go to vote, I'm going to vote for President Trump alone and walk away. Oh, suck on that, Ted Cruz. You got a lot of these guys who are Trump supporters who think you're not, you're not good enough on this issue, that you're not speaking out for President Trump. Well, now that Trump has been indicted, now that the deal has been done, Cruz is speaking out a little bit more. What, what was this from, Jeremy? He was doing a uh, Simpsons impression because he likes to do impressions. Is this from his podcast? Yeah, this is from his podcast. And and, and just to kind of set the stage, like, you know, like, you know, that interview you heard, you know, came during an event where Matt Gates, the congressman from Florida, who I used to cover when he's just a, a ye lad uh, when he was a state rep. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's like, right. so I talked to him after he said this stuff, but he ended up saying like, you know, Ted Cruz, you know, he took some shot at him for not backing, uh, you know, Trump you know, to yeah, the crowd. Yeah. And so the crowd was kind of already kind of riled up on. And I asked him, why are you hitting on Ted Cruz? Ted Cruz endorsed Trump the last time and right. like, was signing MAGA hats and stuff. Like, I think the guy's <laughs> done his due, right? And he's like, I want more. It's like, it's not good enough. Just, you know, I want him to bat a thousand for Donald Trump. <laughs> Absolutely. So here's what Cruz had to say about the indictment of Trump after it was handed up. The case from the Manhattan district attorney, if they bring an indictment and charge him, is utter and complete crap. Actually, as groundskeeper Willie would put it on the on the Simpsons, it's crap. I tell you, it's crap. It's a very hip reference to bring up groundskeeper Willie. How old is the uh, How old is the Simpsons uh, now? I mean, it's it's still on the air, right? Oh yeah, and absolutely. It's still are they going in, strong. Are they in season season thirty or something? It's been it's been going on forever. Yeah, it's sort of like the uh, like South Park. Yeah, you, do you remember when those shows were controversial? Yeah. When they when they first came out, it was a thing that you would have uh, cartoons that would use curse words and get into themes that were considered to be adult themes. Uh, but now it's just not even a thing that those things have been on forever and it's just kind of accepted. But I remember uh, when the Simpsons first came out and that was on network television where yep. you had that was on Fox where where the, the you know South Park was on cable. So they would say, OK, at, at least, you know, maybe there are a lot of homes who at that point still don't have cable in there in, you know, coming into their houses. Uh, but for Fox to be airing that was controversial. You have Cruz saying this whole case is crap, and you have other Republicans saying that there is some abuse of office uh, being done now by the DA in Manhattan. But again, Jeremy, they're not talking about the underlying behavior of former President Trump. And here's one thing that I think maybe they're missing, or maybe they they're maybe they're not making the point they think they're making, which is they say of all the investigations that are open about Trump, this is the weakest one. Well, you're kind of then saying that the other ones are probably pretty good cases, right? Yeah. Or that maybe they have a better shot of of having the guy be convicted. But I think we should pause for just a second and just recognize this fact. We focus here on Texas politics, but Texas politics is national politics and vice versa very often. Um, and with Trump being indicted, this is the first time it's ever happened. A former president indicted. He's going to be arrested, I guess, maybe as soon as this weekend. We'll have to watch this closely, dear listener, because you may be listening to the show and you may already have violence breaking out in some places. We don't know what Trump is going to say to his followers now on his various social media accounts. I mean, he was already sort of laying the groundwork for this to be a tinderbox 
at the rally that we were just talking about. Um, not dissimilar from the way it was a tinderbox right before January 6th, Jeremy. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, how weird is this? So like I had to put this in my story the other day uh, when I was writing about like how Trump was, you know, handling all this stuff. So when the indictment, when he first was saying he was going to be indicted, you know, in this one case, uh, I think a lot of us were like, well, which one? Cause like, there's, I literally had to put a list of the other like things that he could be indicted for in the next couple right. of months, just so people kind of knew. I don't know. This isn't the Georgia one. No, no, this isn't the business dealing one. No, no, this right. isn't the, the the documents he he stashed away at Mar-a-Lago. This is the one in which he gave the porn star some money <laughs> through his right. lawyer to do the dirty work. You know, the lawyer who went to pri- to prison. That guy. Yeah. You're right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Well, we'll uh, we'll keep everything uh, updated for you at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com. It's going to be a developing situation through the weekend and into yep. next week. And, and something that, um, you know, in some ways, I think will change the face of American democracy because we have seen, and this, I think this is fair. You have, you have uh, Trump who broke so many norms, right? That was always the discussion while he was president. He's breaking so many norms. And, and we kept hearing people say, well, at some point he's going to pivot. Right, he'll pivot. We kept waiting for the pivot forever. I was like, well, at, at some point you had to realize, no, that's the way that guy acts, and he's never going to stop that. So norm breaking is the thing. But now the pushback, whenever he then is indicted, which has been something that's not a norm, right, for a former president to be indicted, when the response is out of the norm, somehow that's wrong, yeah. right? It's, it's it's wrong when you know you. I mean, come on, we all learned about physics, you know. I mean, you know, when you have one action, there's a reaction and that's what's going on all across this country. So it's going to be volatile, rough water ahead is what I would say. Uh, in Houston, sort of an earthquake there in the mayoral race. What happened, Jeremy? Oh my gosh. You know, Sheila Jackson Lee, who's been in Congress since, well, going back to 1994 when she won her seat, uh, she's been in Congress forever, right? She has announced she's going to run for mayor and she did it at Uh, a church in Houston, uh, and really just set the whole thing on fire. I hope I've been a humble servant for you for 28 years. Many of you are in my district. Sheila Jackson Lee wants to come home to be your mayor for the city of Houston. And I will not be able to do it without each and every one of you. Running for mayor of Houston is a big deal. I have said for years that, and this is, I think, until fundamental politics about Houston change, fundamental politics of Houston and Texas change, I believe that the mayor of Houston is quite often, if not always, the most powerful Democrat in Texas. And that's because of the size of the city and because of the way the city is set up. So most cities, almost every, well, I'll put it this way, every city in Texas has a city manager except Houston. There may be a couple of uh, changes to that now, but but you know, but by and large, the only city in the state that has a strong mayor form of government in the state is Houston. And when you talk about what happens at the city council meetings, it's the mayor that sets the agenda, right? The mayor, um, you know, runs the departments of the city. There's not a go between. There's not the city manager that you have in Austin or Dallas or San Antonio. It, it's the mayor calls the shots in Houston. Winning the mayor's office is very difficult. Um, ask Sylvester Turner, the current mayor, who I think was running for mayor my entire life. <laughs> the first, the first time he, the first time he ran and lost, it was to Mayor Bob Bob Lanier. Yeah, if I'm remembering that correctly, almost what, almost thirty years ago, something like that. 
And I think it really does. I mean, people said earthquake that it shakes up the race or whatever, but it, but it really does. I mean, there are what five, six, seven candidates who have already announced. I think filing is open through August. Is that correct? Sometime in the middle right, of the yeah. su- sometime in the middle of the summer. So we may see some some other candidates get in. The front runner so far, um, it appears, has been State Senator John Whitmire, uh, a Democrat from Houston, who has a huge war chest. There's some debate about how much money he can take out of his state account and move it to the local account. Some lawyers say he can't move any. Some others argue that he can move it all. As I will tell, I won't you know try to settle that for you right now here on the podcast, but I will tell you this. In politics, money is sort of like water on pavement. It finds every crack and crevice. It will, fi- it will find its way to where it's going to go, right? It's also sort of like a if you put if you drop pebbles in a stream, the water just finds its way right around. That's how money in politics works, right? Um, I don't know that she becomes the instant front runner, Jeremy, but maybe. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think she does become the front runner pretty quickly, uh, just because her name recognition is so off the chart. Uh, the way she kind of tends to, uh, you know, fifth ward politics is going to help her. Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be a race. Don't get me wrong. It's like you know she's gonna have uh, she's a very skilled politician, and I think that's what gonna make this more of a challenge. Uh, but it's interesting. So the, so if it is Whitmire you know, versus Sheila Jackson Lee in some sort of like you know battle royale, uh, boy, talk about you know dividing up a city in a lot of different ways. There's, we're we're yeah. gonna be having all kinds of weird coalitions and people working together that you normally wouldn't see working together. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Republicans, you know, working with Democrats and who knows what, you know, it's going to be just kind of wild, you know, to kind of watch this kind of play itself out. Uh, but yeah, I would definitely say she becomes an instant uh, kind of front runner, uh, but not impossible to defeat. Because remember, like mm-hmm. Sheila Jackson Lee hasn't really had a race. In a long time. In a long time. I've written about this quite a bit. You know, a couple of years ago, she finally had a, a primary challenger. But like most years, she's had nobody to campaign against. You know, she's a mm-hmm. good politician in what she does in terms of like, you know, getting out in the community. Like you can't go in the fifth ward and like have a birthday party with more than 10 people without seeing Sheila Jackson Lee, I think. <laughs> she just seems to like always know where to be. But, you know, there's if you haven't run for a while or haven't had a competitive campaign for a while – yeah, it's a different game out there, you know, when you're actually having to do it. And it's like, and the same kind of really applies a little bit to John Whitmire, right? It's like, in a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah. It's like he hasn't had a real battle. It's like, so you wonder about like the battle testedness. Like, yeah, look, they were in fights before, but I kind of like, you know, if one of these candidates had just recently won something big, you know, had run, had a competitive race, you know, just a little bit more battle tested more recently, you know, then I would, you know, maybe favor one over the other. But going into this, we have two people who might be a little rusty in what it's like to run, you know, whether in a primary or certainly in a general. Like when was the yeah. last time Sheila Jackson Lee had to worry about a general election? Or election? Never, ever. never, yeah, right. never the, had to try to do this where she's going to be having to compete uh, in all parts of Houston and not just, you know, a section of the city. That's why you see a lot of Congress members, you know, when they try to w- run statewide struggle, mm-hmm. you know, it's like because it's such a bigger field. It's really like, look. You know, not, not not to be too obvious, but you know what? Texas is a pretty darn big place. And yeah. Houston is really big, especially if you have to get someplace in 10 minutes and you're in a car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's a big luck. part of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you realize how big the city is. So she's got a lot of work to do. 
You know, it's like, you know, I would put her as the favorite, but uh, it's not one of those rock solid favorites that says, you know, it's hers for sure. Yeah, I think the really fascinating thing to watch will be if you have uh, Sheila Jackson Lee and John Whitmire in a runoff. These are two candidates who are going to have a lot of money for a local race. Yeah. Right? I mean, to, to to your point about her becoming the instant front runner again, I'm not sure if that happens. But one reason I think it could is because I do think she has national name ID. People across the state know who Sheila Jackson Lee is. Right. It, which is which is interesting because even for a lot of Republican members of Congress from Texas, that would not be the case um, on the Republican side. She's a punchline in a lot of ways. They want you know, they always want to beat up on Sheila Jackson Lee, same way that, uh, you know, Democrats might want to beat up on uh, someone like Dan Crenshaw or Ronnie Jackson. Although I don't know that Ronnie Jackson has the name ID that no. Sheila Jackson Lee does. <laughs> um, for for Whitmire, it's interesting that you know in some of his races in the past he would be um, you know as a white candidate, someone who can garner the support of a lot of African American voters uh, in the Houston area. But the ways in which he would do that are, I'll just say, interesting. For example, I remember a race for his reelection. It was a it was a Democratic primary. He had a young man running against him who was African American. And for his mail pieces, one of the mail pieces, uh, as an example, was uh, a it was a flyer that included pictures of a lot of African-American leaders in the Houston area who supported John Whitmire. And the mail piece read, we support John Whitmire, all these black faces on the mail piece, but his face is not on it. Right. It's, that's part of the way that he would run his races and garner that uh African-American support. It's my understanding that, and you have others in the race as well, like uh, Chris Hollins, uh, who was the former uh, clerk there uh, in Harris County. Uh, you have Amanda Edwards, who has been a city councilwoman there. Uh, Lee Kaplan, uh, who's an attorney there in town. Uh, I'm, I think um, a guy named Garcia and a few others who are getting in. So it's a diverse field. Yeah. Right. Like I said, it's probably six, seven, maybe eight candidates, maybe more than that by the time the filing deadline passes. Um, it's very difficult to see how that plays out without a runoff. So it could very well be, you know, Sheila Jackson Lee and John Whitmire or one of them and someone else, or maybe two other people we're not even thinking of, depending on how it all shakes out. Um, but I do think it's interesting with Whitmire that in his last primary in 2022, the young woman who ran against him who had almost no money whatsoever, and he's sitting on more than $11 million in the bank in his campaign account uh, at that point, um, she got about 40%. This, this woman with no name ID, nobody knew who she was, right? And so I do think that if anybody thinks that any of these folks are just naturally going to slide right into the mayor's office in Houston, they'd be wrong about that. Here's the other thing I would say about Whitmire's chances. Here you have Sylvester Turner outgoing as mayor because he is term limited out. Now in Houston, they instead of um, uh, three terms at two years, now they do uh, two at four. So this is his eighth year. He's, he's out. And I don't know that he's all that happy, Jeremy, with Whitmire being the guy who's always beating up on Houston and Harris County as unsafe places that are crime ridden under the leader, under the current leadership. Right. It's been Whitmire, who has been an outlier among the Democrats in the Houston area, saying that, uh, you know, Lena Hidalgo is, uh, you know, on the wrong side of law enforcement, uh, that Whitmire was criticizing her leading up to her reelection as county judge. And I wonder to what degree Hidalgo gets involved in the politics of the mayor's race. You know, she's got her own machine as well, and she's got her supporters as well. And who do Turner 
and Hidalgo end up supporting in this. They probably will keep their powder dry, you know, for the first round of voting. But in a runoff, I would expect them to speak up. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I put this race into the uh, Texas Tech newsletter I'm doing, and the response I was getting from a lot of, you know, even Democrats were like, wow, Whitmire and Sheila Jackson Lee are both in their 70s. When does the next, next generation get a chance? And I, th- and I started thinking about that because it's a really good point because yes. you think of the voter registration surge that Harris County has that has flipped mm-hmm. it blue. Because remember, mm-hmm. 2014, we're voting Republican up and down the line, even you know in Houston, quite honestly. It's like, and now it's changed. Why? Because we brought like uh, 200,000 people into the voter rolls almost overnight. And who are those people? They're younger, more diverse type voters. It's like, mm-hmm. and so now the question, because it, there might be a lane in there. You look at Lena Hidalgo, you know, as a great example, here's a, a candidate who won, you know, under the age of 30, right. You know, it's like that was able to kind of really break through in, in Harris County politics almost overnight. Yeah. And it's like, and so the electorate may not look at Sheila Jackson Lee and John Whitmire and their decades of service. It's like, you know, I, I, I think Whitmire may have been elected when I was born. You know, it's like, I'm not a young guy, y'all. I'm just saying, I'm just not that young. <laughs> yeah, it's been a but, while. But so there's an, there's a, there's an opening there potentially. And that's, and like you, you kind of hit on it. It's like, is there going to be somebody who can kind of rise up? And, you know, again, we know those names really well, but in this current, you know, system in Harris County and in Houston, it's like, what, what do the voters really look like now? It's like, do they hear Sheila Jackson Lee and think, oh, she's a fresh young face for the future? Maybe not. Do they right. Whitmire? Or does Chris Hollins or Amanda Edwards sound more like that person? So this is going to mm-hmm. be a really intriguing race. This is going to have statewide implications, you know, mm-hmm. on so many levels. So yeah, even if you're not in Houston, you want to watch this race. This is going to be absolutely a barn burner. Mm-hmm. Love it. As the hearings continue at the Texas Capitol focused on transgender people, and all of these hearings have just been marathons, Jeremy. I mean, they just go on forever. Although in the House, it was worth noting that the chair of the Public Health Committee declared at the beginning of the hearing she was going to cut off testimony at midnight, which is a new thing. I haven't seen that before. Uh, it would usually be that if there were 400 people signed up to testify on something, then the hearing would go till whenever it went to. Yeah. Two in the morning, four in the morning. So I've been to hearings that lasted till six in the morning when, um, when the abortion bills that were so controversial back in 2013 were making their way through the legislative process. I remember the House State Affairs hearing going until at least five o'clock or so in the morning. And I had, you know, the morning news programs, TV and radio were calling me to go on their morning shows. And I had been there all night. <laughs> um, so I just, you know, I hit the espresso machine and just kept going. Uh, well, on these, on these hearings, they are wrapping up earlier around midnight. I know that sounds like a long time to you, but when there's, let me put it this way, when there's almost 400 people signed up to, you know, signed up to testify, if they each get their two or three minutes, that's about a 19 or 20 hour hearing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If they really did it, but that, that has not unfolded that way. Representative Tony Tinderholt felt like he needed to confront the expert witnesses about a specific question. And you might've seen where there was a documentary that was promoted by some in conservative media about what is a woman. That was the topic. It was promoted on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else. I think it was only uh, distributed online, but I might be wrong about that. Anyway, 
Tinderholt, as one of the quote unquote most conservative members of the Texas House, has taken up the cause of asking this question whenever we're talking about transgender Texans, quote, what is a woman? So one of the people who was testifying during this hearing in the House is Dr. Jessica Zwiener. She's an endocrinologist from Houston. Houston, of course, home to the largest hospital district on planet Earth, the Texas Medical Center. So she works in that area. And Tenderholt asked her the thing he's been dying to ask a he's been <laughs> he's been dying to ask a doctor this basically for his whole life. That's the way it sounded. I'd like to ask you the same thing I asked the other doctor. What's a woman? It sounds like an easy question, but it's a complicated question. Explain it. Tell me the complicated answer. Okay. So when we look at biological sex, most people fall into male or female. There's multiple different ways to determine what sex you are. We look at chromosomes. We look at internal sexual organs. We look at external genitalia. We look at hormone levels. We look at various different genetic um, abnormalities. We look at gender identity. Lots of different things. For most of us, those things line up. We call that cisgender. Some folks, they don't line up. That no, no, no. I asked you about sex. What's a woman? That's a sex, not a gender. Well, I There's think a difference. Our last expert said that a woman was somebody who produces ova. That definition is very limited. But there. you're combining gender and sex in your medical. Now I'm talking about sex. A woman is not just somebody who produces ova. Jeremy, what you're about to hear is when that's um, what happens when someone interrupts expertise with confidence. Listen. I'm not going to claim to be the smartest guy in the room, but I can tell you what a woman is all day long, and I can tell you what a man is. My four-year-old son can tell you what a man and a woman is, and so can my six-year-old daughter. Yet you're a medical professional telling me it's complicated, and then you're the one that is doing these surgeries to children. I'm not doing any surgeries to Well, then you're using puberty blockers. Am I wrong? I use hormones. Okay. But you can't define a man or a woman, but my four- and six-year-old can all day long. They don't even have to talk about XY chromosomes and mm-hmm. double uh, two, two X chromosomes. They don't have to talk about that. Right, because why would you talk about all those facts when you can just say how you feel about who is a man and who is a woman? I will note for the record that Representative Tinderholt never did tell us what a woman is. He said, he, could, he said that he could. He said that he could talk about it all day long, but then he didn't. You will also note that you just heard there he said to the doctor, you do these surgeries on minors, right? And she says, no, I don't do that. Well, you use puberty blockers, right? And she says, no, I don't do that either. It, it, so it was it was an argument built on, I won't say a lie, it, but I, I'm going to butt right up against that. I'm going to say it's, it's, uh, it's based on serious misunderstandings about what goes on with this. The endocrinologist noted, Jeremy, that in, uh, she noted in her testimony that usually if a patient has gone through all of the steps that they would go through before they reach her in the process of transitioning from male to female or vice versa, once they get to her, they've already talked to a whole bunch of doctors before that. Right. So, I mean, this is not something where they just one afternoon, it's sort of portrayed like by Tinderholt and others, it's portrayed as if a kid says, Hey, I think I'm really a girl. And they just go to the doctor that afternoon and the doctor says, well, okay, if you feel like you're really a girl, well, let's, let's get you going. Let's go ahead and do surgery. Let's do surgery right now. Let's do puberty blockers right now. Um, but that's not what happens. They go through, you know, several steps, just like if anything else that you go to the doctor for, if you have to go see a specialist, you got to go to the first doctor and then they send you to somebody else and they might send you to somebody else. They might send you to somebody else. By the time they see this endocrinologist in Houston, there has already been a lot of considering done, 
right? A lot of talking done, a lot of therapy that's already been done. They've, they've seen a therapist and they've talked to them about, you know, the way that they're feeling and what they're going through from a mental health standpoint. Um, and then to have that same doctor stand in a hearing room at the Texas Capitol and be accused of doing one thing after another, which just isn't true. I'm sure for this woman, it may, it may be on the inside, maybe she's angry or infuriated. She she really just kind of kept herself in check. She was very even keel throughout the whole, the whole thing because she's there delivering facts. And the guys who want to crack down on gender affirming care are really speaking to the emotion of it, right? It, it, it just doesn't seem right that, that a boy would become a girl or vice versa, that that's not really possible. And then when he's presented with all these facts about human biology, he's going to ignore that and tell us that he can say what a woman is without doing so. Yeah, it kind of fits into that, what we've talked about a lot on this show, which is like, you know, people are always hoping for a simple answer to a complex problem, right? An offshoot of that would be, you know, if there's something you don't fully understand, uh, it must be wrong. <laughs> you know, yes, it's like, right. I don't know how those people live. So they're wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's easy to get there, you know, versus going, oh, wait a minute. There are people who wake up every day who I don't understand at all how their life is. And let me mm -hmm. hear this conversation back and forth with the doctor to help explain it to me. It's like, he right. was going to say, well, I think you're just full of it anyhow. Out in the country, boys are boys, girls are girls. It's like, it's like, yeah, but there are some <laughs> of those boys and girls in the country who are having a real serious trouble with right. trying to figure out who they are and what they are. And it has, and like, and like she was talking about, it's like there's chromosomes doing stuff in there, man. It's like we're you're not right. bigger than the chromosome. <laughs> the chromosome may be microscopic, but it kind of rules us <laughs> in the end. So it's okay to listen to a discussion on a chromosome. And if your kid, you know, like his, if his kid, like, oh, I can see a woman or a man, it's like, well, get that kid trained on like chromosomes and like understanding right. how we're <laughs> make up as human beings, get some science in that kid. So he kind of understands right. like, oh, just what I see isn't always the truth, right? You know, sometimes right. there's things going on that I can't see that are very complicated that are worth understanding and knowing. And I think we're kind of missing that in those types of exchanges, right? It just like yeah. this, this, give me the simple, easy answer. They're bad. I'm good. Let's move on. You know, that's, they just want to make the point. It's asking a question in bad faith. When you, when you say, what, what is a woman? And then you interrupt the person when they are trying to answer it for you. Uh, and then you say, well, you know, my six-year-old could answer this without having all that book learning that you got while you were at college and medical school and all that sort of stuff. I, I could just ask my six-year-old what a woman is and they could tell you, not that I'm going to tell you here in this hearing, why would we, why would you bother with all those facts? I, 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 I here's, here's what it is. When you ask a question in bad faith, it doesn't matter what the answer is. Right. You're just going to go on and to your point. You're just going to go on and make the point you were going to make anyway. Yeah. And if Tony Tinderholt wants his six year old to take out his gallbladder, go for it. But I'm going to go with the doctor <laughs> on this. <laughs> it's like, it's okay yeah. to just like, you know, show a little bit of professional courtesy to the people who spent so much more of their life in school than I did. It's the same thing with like a lawyer. I'm going to give the lawyer the benefit about, of doubt of knowing the law a little bit better than I do. <laughs> I'm just going to yeah. go there right now and go, I think you might know more than me. And not to say, well, I've been in the country long long enough. And I tell you what, it's like, I think it's illegal, <laughs> even if it's not right. <laughs> why didn't he, why didn't he just say, I'm not going to claim to be the smartest guy in the room and now I'm going to prove it to you. 
So here, here. <laughs> and I, I'm so, so sick of the I'm just a small town country lawyer thing. It's just like right. th- that doesn't help the people who live in the country, and it doesn't help the people in the city understand the the people in the country. It's like it's it's really kind of I think messes up everybody's understanding of each other. We're all in the same state. It's not that right. different. <laughs> you can get to know people in the country, and they don't all sound like a country, you know, right. farmer who doesn't know uh-huh. anything. It's like I hate that image. It's like it's not true. I've been in the country. They're not like <laughs> uneducated lumps who can't figure out that there are chromosomes in women. <laughs> right. They're they're not idiots. Ask ask a farmer about the science of crop rotation and things yeah, like that. Exactly. I mean, they'll get into some really detailed stuff really fast. Yeah. Uh, and they'll be talking about you know the chemicals that are used in in farming and what they're for and all of that. And you know, it, it is it's it's sort of taking advantage of the people who you know that some people might describe as as country bumpkins. Um, the medical community was working on one of our congressmen from Texas, uh, who it came out in the news recently is battling cancer, uh, Joaquin Castro. Uh, and he, he was able to pass some legislation while he's in the hospital in Texas. What was the story? Jimmy? Yeah. Th- okay. And this is a good cleanser. If like, if you're like me, I like a good bipartisan story. And so here I is do. Like, I need that after all the, what's a woman stuff. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I've hit bipartisan stuff very hard in the newsletter for those of y'all who are following it. And it's for mm-hmm. a reason. <laughs> it's like after the Waco rally, it's like, I wanted to like go, wait, look, there are Republicans and Democrats who get along and everybody loves each other. Yeah, and you. By the way, go to uh, Jeremy's uh, Twitter page. The link there uh, is uh, right at the top, I think, to yep. sign up for the newsletter at Jeremy S. Wallace. So, what was the story? Yeah, so so Joaquin Castro diagnosed with cancer uh, in his gastro gastrointestinal tract uh, and had to go to Houston to get that removed. He's recovering mm-hmm. from surgery. Couldn't be in Congress as like a bill that he had been working on for quite some time, you know, was coming up for a vote, you know, in the committee. And so he, he kind of was going to be out of luck because they got rid of all that, you know, uh, where you could, you know, do it from a distance like we did during COVID. The Republicans mm-hmm. eliminated that. You can't do it remotely anymore. You have to be in the chamber. So like right. he's, 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 this bill's gonna, not going to make it, right? No, it does because of people like Michael McCall, a Republican, you know, who helps kind of get the bill through committee. And then on the floor, like the Republicans and Democrats were all kind of helping each other and saying, this one's for you, Joaquin. You know, we're going to make sure this okay. thing gets passed because you put a lot of effort into this thing. And the, the heart of the bill is that it gives, you know, better diplomatic relations in standing for Southeast Asian countries. Uh you know, think of like, you know, Thailand and Laos and the places like that where they're going to have basically the same footing as the European Union or the African Union. Kind of a good way to kind of help us counter the influence of China in the yeah. South Pacific. So it's really kind of a big deal. And it's kind of a good piece of legislation that has Republican and Democratic support. But it was just mm-hmm. kind of nice to see everybody kind of rallying around and saying, F you, cancer. We're going to you know help this guy get right. this thing through. He'll be back here in no time. Castro says he's on the on the mend. He thinks he'll be back up in Congress in in uh, in April sometime towards the end of mm-hmm. April. Uh, so he'll be back on duty. But you know, but he's still working. He's still able to work from a distance. You know, he just can't get to D.C. on a flight to make the vote. And but they did it for him. So there you go. Republicans, Democrats working together for I don't know our national security interests. 
Wow. Yeah, it's a good stuff. Well, I love to see a team effort like that. And speaking of it, this week in Austin, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Central Texas kicked off their Visionaries of the Year campaign working to fight blood cancers. Here's CBS Austin's John Carlos Estrada. Last night, I had the honor of kicking off the Leukemia Lymphoma Society's 2023 Visionaries of the Year campaign. For the next 10 weeks, 14 candidates based here in Austin have a goal of raising $900,000 for the LLS mission. And that includes their Dare to Dream project that is reimagining blood cancer care for children. So we'll see them back in June for the grand finale. We'll see who raises the Ooh, most. It's a exciting. healthy competition. A little healthy competition. 10 weeks, though. That's a lot of money to raise. That is a lot. She's right. It is a lot, but we can do it together with your help. In fact, Jeremy, uh, just got another large donation this morning uh, of $1,000. ScottBraddock.com is where you can go to uh, contribute to LLS. We really appreciate it. So far for our little part, you know, this little part of the campaign that I'm helping with, we've raised just over around $10,000 so far, and we'll keep going for the next nine weeks. You're in it with us. And remember the challenge. If you love the show, you need to give at least $20. If you love to hate on me, give at least 25. ScottBraddock.com. ScottBraddock.com. That's where the, um, where the link is. One other thing before we go here. Did you see this uh, Texas House chairman get pranked, sort of Bart Simpson style. Oh boy, I in did. The, <laughs> in the hearing, in a hearing the other day. Um, let me set the scene for you. Um, and this is, um, I keep saying this, Jeremy, politics now needs a parental advisory. You have the lieutenant governor just, you know, cussing up a storm about the media at the Waco rally earlier. You heard that. Um, the way that President Trump speaks, uh, you know, talking about, you know, Porn stars and all this other stuff. It's all in the mix in politics now. So you can't be squeamish to be interested in our civic life. Um, During hearings of the House and Senate, the chairman of the committee will call out the names of people who are about to testify. And those people may be sitting in the hearing room or they may be outside. Sometimes there's an overflow room where people are watching on televisions and they have to walk into the hearing room to be able to sit down at a microphone and give their testimony. And so I hadn't seen this before in the Texas House. I think it's happened in some other places. In fact, I think it happened recently in Florida, Jeremy, where there was a chairman who was calling out the names of people who should be there to testify. And instead, somebody put fake names into the computer and they're <laughs> they're gaming the system to get a fun reaction. I thought that the chairman, once he started to read the names, I thought he handled it with some grace <laughs> because he kept rolling through the names and uh this is how that sounded this sort of went uh viral yesterday is there a connie lingus here what about anita dickenming <laughs> or holden holden middick okay are any three of those people here all right you got your you got your, you got your moment. I hope you enjoy it. Now, as he was reading the names, you could hear some of the other people in the room start to laugh hysterically. And it's the kind of laughter where you know you're not supposed to be laughing. So this is supposed to be a serious proceeding. It's a serious hearing of a Texas House committee. One of the members, if you watch the video, I've got it on my Twitter, at Scott Braddock. Um, if, you, if you watch the video, one of the members of the committee Literally, she turned her chair around so that she wouldn't be facing the audience because she was breaking down laughing because of how ridiculous all of this was. And I think with all of the serious things that we have talked about here and with all of the serious business that's yet to come as the legislature really 
kicks into high gear, Jeremy, because we really are there. As you have noted, so many committee hearings going on right now. There's a flurry of activity. I mean, you can't keep up with all of the hearings that are happening, all the different testimony that's happening. That's why you turn to folks like Jeremy and myself to kind of sort it out for you and figure out which things are important. We appreciate that you trust us for that. Um, As it kicks into high gear, I will welcome every chance for comedic relief. (laughs) Believe me, if there's anything funny that comes up, I'm going to, I'm just going to put it out there immediately. And, and Hey, you got to have a sense of humor in this business. If you, if you don't, if you're not able to laugh at some of this stuff, you will not be durable in politics. Yeah. There's less than 60 days left in the session. There aren't going to be a lot of like moments of humor from here out, but man, Mm -hmm. we're going to need them if we're going to survive with all the intensity that's going on. Oh yeah, definitely. No doubt about it. However you listen to the show, hit the subscribe button. We love that you do that. If, if you have the option to automatically download the show, that's the best way for you to do it. Uh, give to LLS, scottbraddock.com, and subscribe at corearmreport.com, houstonchronicle.com. We will see you next week. Mm-hmm.